Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Day. Today. President Trump's chief of staff holds a surprise press conference to say things are stable in the White House. Hours later, the president releases a surprise statement to say he's destabilizing Obamacare. And survivors of one of the most persecuted ethnic groups on Earth, the Rohingya, are telling their stories. It's Friday, October 13th. Good afternoon. We'll jump right in. I've got a couple of brief announcements. Glenn Thrush, what happened Thursday inside the White House press briefing room? So Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the president's press secretary, came out as usual. And behind her was this tall man. I thought it would be nice, since we're at the White House and we have the option of calling in the Marines, that today we might call in one of our favorites, General Kelly. Uh, So with that, I'm going to turn it over to the chief of staff. And uh, she turned over the entire... White House briefing to Kelly. Well, good afternoon. Great to be here. A um, couple of comments, I guess, and then open it up for Q&A. Um, England, what does General Kelly say once he gets to the podium? He says... I'm not quitting today. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't believe, and I just talked to the president, I don't think I'm being fired today. What do we know about why General Kelly felt the need to go out to the podium and say this? The narrative was getting away from John Kelly. The first spate of stories were very, very positive. He had taken control of the White House. He had gotten rid of some of the the wooliest characters that he believed were sort of contaminating the process there. But there's been a whole spate of stories about how Kelly had kind of overshot his role in terms of cracking down and taking control of the place. So on one hand, the narrative has served him really, really well as a guy who stabilized things. But he realized the moment had come where he needed to get out there and defend himself personally. So if Kelly was defending himself, who was he defending himself from? What was he defending himself against? Great question. As usual, it's two audiences. Actually, it's three audiences. It's us, obviously, the press, which he focused on. The second audience is the staff of the White House. Hmm. And, of course, the audience of one that Sean Spicer would perform for every single day. Meaning? Donald John Trump. You know, it's funny. I, I, I read in the paper, you, well, you, you all know, you write it, that, uh, you know, I was, I, I've been uh, a failure at controlling the president or a failure at controlling his tweeting and all that. I, again, I was not sent in or I was not brought to this job to control anything but the flow of information to our president 
so that he can make the best decisions. Why would he feel the need to say that? As best I can tell, he wasn't asked a question about whether he controls the president. Because the president of the United States will fire anybody who tries to control him or make their lives so miserable that they want to quit, period. (laughs) And that's the paradox of Trump. He needs to be managed. He's the least experienced president in terms of government experience that we've had recently. And yet he is somebody who really, really bristles at being controlled. President Trump in recent days has gotten into a bit of a war of words with Senator Bob Corker, the latest Republican who he's had a public feud with. Within the past couple of days, Glenn, Senator Bob Corker, a very senior lawmaker who deals in foreign relations, said a couple of very provocative things about the president. One was that he thought the White House was adult daycare for the president that monitored him and made sure that he didn't do something irresponsible. And he said that there were three senior members of the White House staff who he believed stood between this president and essentially chaos. One of those was John Kelly. The other was Defense Secretary James Mattis and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. How do those comments, which got a lot of attention, fit into what Kelly came out and talked about on Thursday? If you listen to Kelly carefully, nothing that he said when he came out in the briefing room contradicted the notion put forth by Corker that he, Secretary of Defense James Mattis and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, were were stabilizing the administration. Just listen carefully to the way that he describes it. He said, no, 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 I am not trying to control the president. Uh, I restrict no one, by the way, from going in to see him. But when we go in to see him now, rather than onesies and twosies, we go in... Uh, and help him collectively understand uh, what what he needs to understand to make these vital decisions. So, uh, again, I was not sent into or brought in to control him, and you should not measure my effectiveness as a chief of staff by what you think I should be doing, but simply uh, the fact is I can guarantee to you that he is now presented with options Uh, well-thought-out options. Those options are discussed in detail with his team. Uh, And then he comes up with with the right decision. Well, that is controlling the president. Controlling Hmm. paper and people is the job of a gatekeeper, traditional role of a chief of staff. He is seizing on sort of a semantic device, and he knows his boss very well. He knows his boss does not like the language of control. Very clever by uh, Kelly and very much in keeping with his success in climbing the chain of command uh, in the military. It's almost as if you're saying that while Kelly goes out there and reassures the president, I'm not not trying to do anything you don't want me to do, he is simultaneously reassuring the rest of the world, don't worry, I got this. Boom. And you saw the tightrope that he is walking in the West Wing on the outside today. That's what made this press conference so fascinating. It was all out in public. This is really, really hard work, uh, running the United States of America. I don't run it, uh, but I'm working for someone who is uh, dedicated to serving the country in the way that he's talked about for a number of years. So is it possible, Glenn, that General Kelly came out on Thursday and said what he said about not being fired and that he doesn't control the president because he's afraid that if he doesn't say those things, he won't stick around much longer and do the things he thinks he does need to do to keep this presidency in check. John Kelly doesn't give a damn about being fired Hmm. by Donald Trump is my sense. But I think we're seeing something we haven't necessarily seen all that much during the Trump administration. We're seeing a public official who is essentially more concerned about doing his job than the optics. Hmm. 
So he has to do a certain amount of optics in order to empower himself to do the job. But his performance today, and it was a performance, was about creating an environment in which he could actually get his work done. I would tell you, this is the hardest job I've ever had. Uh, this is, in my view, the most important job I ever had. Uh, I would offer, though, it is not the best job I ever had. Best job I ever had, as I've said many times, is when I was an enlisted Marine sergeant infantryman. That was the best job I ever had. So uh, unless things change, I'm not um, quitting. I'm not getting fired. And uh, I don't think I'll fire anyone tomorrow. Late Thursday night, without warning, the White House released a statement saying it would do away with the federal subsidies to health insurance companies that help pay out-of-pocket costs for low-income people under the Affordable Care Act. Since I started running and since I became president of the United States, I just keep hearing repeal, replace, repeal, replace. Well, we're starting that process and we're starting it in a very positive manner. Hours earlier, President Trump had signed an executive order allowing insurance companies to sell lower-cost policies with fewer benefits and fewer protections than those required under the ACA. The low-cost plans are seen as likely to attract healthy, often younger people away from the insurance marketplaces created by Obamacare and could therefore drive up costs for the less healthy Americans who remain in them. And you'll get such low prices for such great care. It should have been done a long time ago, and it could have been done a long time ago. Taken together, the two acts could send insurance premiums soaring and insurance companies fleeing from the Obamacare marketplaces, suggesting that after failing to repeal the Affordable Care Act in Congress, President Trump is determined to unravel it on his own. We'll be right back. According to the Federal Reserve, the average net worth of white families is nearly 700% higher than black families. Mass Mutual, a proud sponsor of Black History Continued, believes that racial inequality is driven by a disparity of economic opportunity and that we can all help end it. With a growing list of programs that support minority business and fund Black education, Mass Mutual is working to close the gap and help people in all communities secure their futures and protect their loved ones. Learn more at massmutual.com. My colleague Jeffrey Gettleman just returned from one of the refugee camps in Bangladesh, where hundreds of thousands of Rohingya have fled from Myanmar. Can you tell us about this woman you met in the refugee camp, Rajuma? Rajuma is a young woman who grew up in a small rice farming hamlet in Myanmar. She's a Rohingya Muslim. Rajuma thought she was around 20 years old, but she looked about 14. She was very thin, had these delicate wrists that looked like they could easily break. She had a, a jagged scar on her chin, another scar on her head, and she clearly had been, had been traumatized. And I sat with her for several hours in this hut, essentially, um, sitting on the ground. And as she told us more about where she lived, she gave me a sense of a very divided, isolated world that she had grown up in. And Jeffrey, what's the story that Rajuma told you? 
So Rajuma told me one of the worst stories I've ever heard in my life. And for anybody listening, I, what she lived through was very upsetting, mm -hmm. very disturbing, and she described it in quite graphic detail. So this is what Rajuma told me. On the morning of August 30th, she woke up to see dozens of government soldiers jogging into her village. Mm -hmm. And Rajuma was with her family, cowering in her house, watching the village burn down around her. Wow. Rajuma had a small child, about 18 months old, named Muhammad Sadiq. It was her first child. And she said that she ran out of her house with her family members, clutching this little boy in her arms and she was quickly captured by soldiers. And then she, along with several other people I talked to who had described the exact same sequence of events, said that the families were marched to a riverbank and the men were separated from women and the men were quickly executed by the soldiers who either shot them in the head or used these long knives and slit their throats. Oh, jeez. The women and children were, were standing there made to watch this. And then they were told to go stand in a river and wait. And at this point when I was talking to her, she, she got really quiet and I felt, I felt bad for asking for mm -hmm. more information, but I felt it was important mm -hmm. to document. So Rajuma said that the soldiers were looking at her and they called her out of the water while she was holding her son. And they pointed their guns at her. And they said, you. She didn't even want to move. Mm -hmm. And they yelled it louder, you. And while she was walking out of the water and being led to a house, these men grabbed her baby out of her arms. And she said that she fought as hard as she could, but she, she was probably five feet tall and less than 100 pounds, mm -hmm. and was quickly overpowered. And she said she watched these soldiers throw her baby son into a fire, and he burned to death. Oh, my God. And there were other women who told me the same thing had happened to them. And this is when she was hit in the face with a club, nearly knocked out, screaming, crying, and then dragged into a house and gang-raped. And her mother and her sister and her younger brother were in the same house. And her sisters were also raped. And all the family, except for her, was killed. Jeffrey, what you're describing is, is surreally cruel. It, it was. And, and it's very rare, even when you're a journalist who covers a lot of these conflicts, to, to meet somebody who has lived through something like that. How did... Rajuma make it out after what the soldiers did? Rajuma told me that she woke up after being raped. She had passed out. She doesn't know how long. Mm -hmm. And she woke up in a house filled with smoke. And she ran out naked, covered in blood, by herself. And she hid in a field and spent the night in this forest near the village, watching soldiers continue to kill people. And then in the morning began to run. And she found some scraps of clothes along the way. And she kept running. And eventually she got far enough away from the village 
where she met other people who were coming out of hiding, who had been survivors of other massacres. And together in a small group, they began to walk towards the border of Bangladesh. And as they walked, the group got bigger and more survivors trudged out of the bushes in the forest to join them. And they finally got to the border and she crossed on a small boat and began to join the hundreds of thousands of people who were doing the exact same thing and seeking refuge in these large, sprawling, messy, muddy camps that have sprung up nearly overnight on the border between Bangladesh and Myanmar on the Bangladeshi side. Let me make sure I understand who Rajuma says carried this out. Who was it? So Rajuma and, and dozens of people I talked to were very clear about who carried this out. It was the government of Myanmar's military mm-hmm. and some police units. They were wearing uniforms. They were carrying rifles. These were not wild mobs. This was organized. She said she saw people talking on telephones and helicopters in the air when this operation was happening. There was no effort to disguise it or keep it secret. These soldiers had come into her village with the intent to wipe everybody out. Jeffrey, why would the Myanmar military do what you're describing to women and children? In your telling, and in the telling of the witnesses that you've talked to, it doesn't just sound like murder. It it sounds like deliberate, extraordinary cruelty. It's It's actually hard to fathom why one group of people would ever do this to another. So help us understand how this could be happening. You know, it's really sad, but I think the, the, the government military had a mission to wipe out the Rohingya community, and they didn't care if they were men, women, or little babies. They wanted to wipe out every single Rohingya. They wanted to erase their existence. And the reason why, I mean, it's, it sounds like madness, but I think there's more to it than that, because not everybody goes insane at the same time like that. This is part of a long story that begins years ago mm-hmm. with this Rohingya community, a Muslim-speaking, ethnically Bengali community that got tucked into to Myanmar during the partition of India and the British colonies after World War II. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, the Myanmar government, which is mostly Buddhist and ethnically very different, has demonized the Rohingya and said that they have stolen the best land and that they're vermin and snakes and insects and that they don't belong inside Myanmar. And this just got worse and worse. And rights were taken away from the Rohingya. They were denied citizenship. It was difficult to get married, difficult to go to school, difficult to leave the village. And then connected to this, a Rohingya militant group sprung up and they started attacking government positions and trying to defend the Rohingya people and their words. And this created this uh, cycle of violence that gave the government the perfect excuse to try to wipe out the entire Rohingya community because now the Rohingya had been branded as terrorists. And they were quick to say that the Rohingya militants were part of ISIS or part of Al-Qaeda or part of some Islamic terrorist group, even though there wasn't much evidence of that. How many Rohingya at this point have been killed in this conflict with the government of Myanmar? 
It's hard to say. Thousands. And we think from the best estimates of what we heard in August, there were several thousand killed in the span of a few days. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority were unarmed civilians, many of them women and children. So we don't know the full scale. And the sad thing is we never will Mm -hmm. because the areas where this happened were burned to the ground and then sealed off and all the witnesses scattered in a million different directions. And it's been very hard to try to piece together what exactly happened. How many Rohingya have left Myanmar? And what's happening to the refugees who somehow make it out of these areas? So out of a population of about 1.2 million, close to 800,000 have left. I mean, 800,000 people is a stunningly large number. It, It seems like the equivalent of a major U.S. city just being emptied out. It is, and it's overwhelming to see all these people together who have just fled for their lives. This whole situation you're describing has a special resonance in the United States because of something we've talked about on The Daily in the past, which is the leader of Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi, and her reputation for being a champion of human rights and the way that Western leaders like President Obama have embraced her. And the last time we reported on the situation with the Rohingya, Aung San Suu Kyi was unwilling to confront Myanmar's military about these murders and atrocities. Has that situation changed? A little bit. Aung San Suu Kyi is in a difficult position because she is being tolerated by the military that controlled Myanmar for a long time. Mm -hmm. And the country just switched to civilian rule. So she has to walk a very fine line because if she speaks out too much about the military's actions, there could be a coup and they could put her in jail and that could be the end of this civilian rule experiment. But that said, I don't, hmm. I don't want to apologize for her. I don't know the dynamics that well, but I'm sure there's more she could have done to speak out. And if it meant losing her job, then that's what many people would think was the right thing to do. What can you tell us about what Aung San Suu Kyi said on Thursday about the situation? She's trying to give an impression that the country is under control and that the violence has stopped and that there's an effort to reconcile these communities. And over the past several weeks, there have been discussions between Bangladesh and Myanmar about having these Rohingya refugees return to Myanmar. Mm-hmm. But there's a real question of whether Myanmar even wants that because the express intent of this operation in August was to drive these people out. That's, that's really clear. It was ethnic cleansing by the book. That's the words the UN Human Rights Office used. Does that make these war crimes and will they be treated that way? Well, this is the big question. What now about justice? What happens to somebody like Rajuma, who was a witness to crimes against humanity and war crimes and possibly genocide? But we're not even there yet because these villages are still being burned. People are still coming over the border. When I was in Bangladesh, there were boats washing up with hundreds of people escaping. And then there were bodies washing up of people who had drowned in these tropical storms trying to cross a a two-mile body of water. 
And so it's an ongoing crisis. It's not over. Jeffrey, thank you very much for your reporting. I appreciate that being able to talk about it. Here's what else you need to know today. The Iran deal was one of the worst and most one-sided transactions the United States has ever entered into. In a speech later today, President Trump is expected to decertify a landmark agreement struck by President Obama to prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons. The president's national security advisors are united behind a plan to disavow the nuclear accord, but not end it immediately setting up the possibility that the terms could be renegotiated. But critics say they fear Iran and other foreign powers would not appreciate the distinction. The Daily is produced by Theo Balcom, Lindsay Garrison, Rachel Quester, Annie Brown, Andy Mills, Christopher Worth, and Ike Sriz Kandaraja, with editing help from Larissa Anderson. Lisa Tobin is our executive producer. Samantha Hennig is our editorial director. Brad Fisher is our technical manager. Our theme music is by Jim Brunberg and Ben Landsverk of Wonderly. Special thanks to Peter Sale, Sam Dolnick, Michaela Bouchard, John Bogata, and Jonah Kessel and Adam Ellick for the audio they recorded in North Korea. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you Monday. It's happening. Gradually, we're getting one step closer to hugging, to dancing, to shaking our neighbor's hand. With every COVID-19 vaccination, your local CVS is helping us get one step closer. So what do you want to be one step closer to? A big wedding? Spin class? Share what you can't wait to do with hashtag one step closer and tag CVS Pharmacy. Here's to being one step closer to a better tomorrow.